You're listening to A World of Black Writers from the Hurston Wright Foundation. Hi, my name is Crystal Davis, a member of the Board of Directors for the Zora Neale Hurston Richard Wright Foundation. On this edition of A World of Black Writers, I'm joined by L. Nathan John, a 2017 Hurston Wright Legacy Award nominee for his debut novel, Born on a Tuesday, which was published by Grove Press. El Nathan, thank you so much for joining us today. I know it's late where you are. Are you calling in from Nigeria? No, I'm actually in Berlin. Oh, okay. What time is it there right now? A little past 10 p.m. Okay. Now, your book, Born on a Tuesday, for folks out there who are unfamiliar with this work, it's your debut novel. And it started out as a short story that I believe you received a number of accolades for. Can you describe for us what Born on a Tuesday is about? Born on a Tuesday is a, as we say, Bildungsroman, a um, coming-of-age story that traces the life of a young Muslim itinerant scholar, what is called in Hausa an Al-Majiri, who leaves his home in Sokoto in the northwestern Nigeria to a city to receive Quranic education. And he makes this long trip, as do other kids, but um, along the way he meets some street kids and uh, thus begin, begins a life of searching for a father figure. It explores boyhood and the journey to manhood against the backdrop of Islamic fundamentalism and interrogates the, the reasons why some people may be vulnerable or may be more vulnerable than others um, when it comes to falling for some of these ideologies that that have violent tendencies. Um, it's also in many ways a novel about northern Nigeria, about culture, and about exploring narratives through a different prism, not not just one prism, how how people see love, for example, what is masculinity, what does it mean for two young men to be friends, what are the levels of friendship that the, the, the patriarchal space allows. Um, all of this told through the voice of, of Dantala, the, the young protagonist who uh, tries to find meaning in the world. Okay, well, given that those elements in the nature of your character, do you feel like this book is more so a young adult novel, or is it it's a book for anyone? So I certainly wouldn't call my novel a young adult novel, um, even though I, more and more I, these categories baffle me. <laughs> um, I'm not sure that I'm very fond of all of these uh, boxes, uh, whether it's young adult or literary fiction or all of that. I mean, I'm, I'm certainly sure that I did not intend to write a young adult um, novel. What I know, though, is, is what, what I intended to, to write about, which for me is far more important than what labor it may have. Given the fact that your character is a Muslim in the book and you're describing a, a time period in Nigeria where there was a clash of the religions there, do you feel like you had a need or a responsibility to tell the story, given the misconceptions people might have about individuals of Muslim faith? It's a bit tricky, especially using the word feeling a responsibility. I'm careful about using those terms, or like, oh, I, I thought it was my duty to do this or that, because I do think that, you know, it's easy for writers, especially, to, 
have some sort of God complex and assume that there are certain people who have no voice for whom we should speak. Um, I think that my first job is as a storyteller. And as, and as a storyteller who believes in the power of narratives and that every narrative, however mundane or basic, is the very act of telling this narrative is political. And just because of that, all stories for me are equal and important, whether or not you are tackling these bigger issues that, that some may feel a responsibility to, to tell. However, what, what I did feel was a responsibility to my character that I had created, who happens to exist in this space that, that is, is more realistic than, than otherwise. And so, for example, I felt a responsibility to, to know the facts, to know the area, to know the theology upon which the movements in, in this space are premised, to know the political situation well enough, but also to know persons like my protagonist, to do interviews, to, to read all of the texts, to do basically all of the research that was important in showing empathy with this certain space. I mean, the more you learn, the more you realize, well, I can only do so much in portraying a person's or a society's complexity. And, and that makes you write carefully, cautiously, with the knowledge that you are writing about people and lives and there are human beings involved. So for writers who are trying to follow along sort of like your path or attain the level of success that you've had, I know you used to primarily write short stories and this is your first novel. How was that transition for you? Did you write the short story that your novel is primarily based on with the intention that you were going to develop it into a novel or... Was it like something that you realized like afterwards, given feedback that you received from others who read your story? You're right. I, I, I started out writing um, short fiction. So the first chapter, its first incarnation was a story that was published in Per Contra and then got shortlisted for the Kane Prize. It became immediately clear once the story was transported from the space in which it was sort of domiciled, which was Nigeria. And, and this is a space I first wrote it for without any thought of, uh, of a wider audience or a wider interrogation of not just the story, but the craft. It became immediately clear that this story was incomplete. Although I thought that it achieved the exact purpose for which it was created. It was a very specific story. It was a story about the identity of the actors in the sphere of, of post-electoral violence that we had in 2011. Once I did that, I found all of these questions thrown up because not everyone who read the story understood this context. Mm -hmm. So of course, Northern Nigerians would immediately see the context. However, to many others, it, it may just have looked like a, a story about random violence by some boys, you know. So I, I thought, well, for myself, these questions have been asking. Why is he where he is? Where does he come from? What are the motivations for what he's doing, but also for what others are doing around him? What is the religious premise, you know, and how does he reach that point? And that is why I, I extended the story. At, at first, I didn't want to write a novel because I didn't ever really want to write a novel, but 
after the Kane Prize, I already had, I mean, when the Kane Prize uh, shortlisted the story in 2013, I already have a, had a few chapters of the novel. I didn't really feel a need to finish it immediately. I thought it was going to be a much longer project. But then I, I felt motivated to take this character to a space that I thought would at least do justice to the, to this world that I had sort of encroached upon, if you like, by virtue of writing about it. And, and it was a rewarding process to extend that story. Uh, so much I didn't know that I, that I had to know to write the story. And I think I, I was glad that I, uh, that I wrote the novel. Oh, wow. That's really interesting to hear that you were kind of resistant to the idea of building out the story more. But the fact that you've done so, you've received so many accolades for the book that you did create. I want to know if you could read a small passage from your book, just to give the listeners and the readers out there and fans of yours an idea of the work that you created and why you've been nominated time and time again for this particular book. Tune in the radio to find stations. I find BBC Hausa and BBC English. I like BBC Hausa, especially the news. It is surprising that I learn new Hausa words from a foreign radio station. Comparing the news on BBC English to that on BBC Hausa is interesting. Sometimes I do not know a word in English and I hear it in Hausa and I understand. Other times there is a Hausa phrase I have never heard before, like Majalisar Dinkin Dunia, which BBC English calls United Nations. If I had not heard the English, I would have translated it to mean association of joining the world. But then if I had heard United Nations, I would have called it Tinka Kunkasashi in Hausa. Words turn into something else when they change from Hausa to English and back. Wow. That particular passage, is that an experience that you had yourself? in terms of learning new languages and figuring out how they mean different things across different countries? Very much so. And beyond that, for me, it, it illustrates the power of language, but also the pitfalls of language. And that often, especially as people who find themselves in the global space spoken for, in the sense that you often find that people make assumptions about you when you are not sort of part of the mainstream. So for the writers out there, I wanted to give them some more perspective from you about your process and how you think about the writing industry and being a writer overall. Now, I read in some past stories about you that you're a former or recovering lawyer and that one of the reasons why you left that practice or decided to you know become a full-time writer is that you became disillusioned by the industry. Since the time you've become a full-time writer, is there anything about the writing process or the industry that, you know, stresses you out or disillusions you or wasn't what you expected it would be? Well, I'm sure if you look hard enough, you will find sources of disillusionment everywhere you go. However, I, I think that because writing is such a personal process, in many ways I have far more control over it than, say, for example, being a lawyer whose entire career depends upon the legal system, you know, and also it's a very long-term commitment. Not, not that writing is not, but I mean, I'm not, I didn't want to spend years following one case in court uh, or dealing with corruption in the judiciary. I mean, there are problems in our industry and, and this, you find these are not peculiar industry and especially one that is, you know, very affected by, by capitalism, there are many things to do, but also as a writer from Nigeria, 
and one who falls into that African writing space, you find that you have to deal with the global sort of publishing industry, the global art space, which itself is fraught with problems. And often, as African writers, there's so many issues of representation that we have to deal with. As black writers, there are countless other you know, issues. But like I said, the most rewarding parts are being able to have the privilege to create narratives, to own storytelling. For me, I think there's nothing more important than owning a narrative. It's so political, the art of creating stories, because as a Nigerian, as a black person, throughout history, people have written my story. People have told my story. People have put me in the position where often you would have to respond instead of creating your stories. And so to be in the position to be able to own the narrative and actually tell the story you want to tell, how you want to tell it, I think is a privilege um, and one that I don't take very lightly. That's really great to hear. And to build off of what you've just given us, I wanted to see whether or not you can give any advice to aspiring writers out there and whether or not you have any advice specifically for black writers in terms of story craft or development or how you go about approaching your next story or book. Like what advice or tips do you have for them? It's funny. I have a a thing that I say about, about, I have this thing called uh, frequently asked questions for writers because I'm a satirist. So there's a whole satire thing I have and I have this exact question. And my answer to it is, you know, I don't give advice to younger writers because I'm one myself. (laughs) (laughs) That's not fair. (laughs) I think that it's important for writers to share their process. And I would say that one thing that I have learned, and this everyone says, of course, it feels like a cliche even to say, is that you only give out what you have taken in. And I've learned to read better and read wider. And I've learned how to read. And often people spend a lot of time learning how to write stories and how to, you know, the craft and all of that. And that's all fine. Often it's easy, especially the the more you write, to take for granted the process of reading. For me as a writer, reading is not just reading. Reading is studying. And I've learned new ways to read. And I just find that there's no better way to improve one's craft than to be able to strip bare um, a story and look at the building blocks of that story. Look at the reasons why stories are organized. You learn two things, actually. One, the process of writing. Two, the process of editing. Because you can also see, for example, the structures. And you know that as a writer, these structures don't happen magically. And that some there are more people than the writer involved in building that structure, like the editor, for example, people for whom I have great respect. Because I always say that the editor is the is the person that saves you from embarrassing yourself. <laughs> so for me, I think that learning new ways to read has helped me more than anything else, and, and, and finding out how to identify the building blocks of writing that that I like. Oh, good. That's a good way to look at it. I haven't heard that perspective before. And well, thank you so much for joining us for this podcast. Your perspective is greatly appreciated. And good luck on your nomination for the Hurston Wright Award. 